Our Friday panel is with us in studio ahead of our new Bank Holiday Weekend, of course, and we may speak about that later in the slot. With us in studio are Sligo Leitrim Independent TD Marion Harkin and Jim Lawler, former President of Sligo Chamber of Commerce and Industry, who fancied a shot at Marion's doll seat himself a couple of years ago. Jim, is that right? 2007, I think, was it? No. Was it? Or no, 1997. 1997 it was. I knew there was a seven at the end of it. Welcome to you both and, and thanks for joining us. Um, I'm, I'm going to start with, with the story we've been running this morning, uh, Marion Harkin, about the Rosses Point meeting which you brought up in the doll because, and even still there's texts coming in saying people didn't know about the meeting. Well, just to clarify, you did not organise the meeting or no hand no, actor uh, part in it. No, first of all, Niall, it's not Marion Harkin's seat, let me assure you. I have, uh, no, being but I know there. what you're saying, yeah, yeah. but... Uh, uh, the seat belongs to the people oh, and oh, yeah. they yeah. decide who, who sits in it for sometimes a short period of time and sometimes longer. It's their choice. But coming back to the uh, Ross's Point meeting, no, I didn't organise it. But all three local TDs were there, uh, Mark McSharry, Frank Feehan and some um, representatives of business and community reps in Ross's Point. And actually, it was an excellent meeting because it allowed us to sit around a table where they identified what they considered to be the four most important issues yeah. in Ross's Point and asked us as politicians to move on it and do something about it. And I thought that was a good meeting because it, it, they explained what the circumstances are and they asked us to take action. And the four points that they raised with us were, first of all, um, the need to increase the number of buses to yeah. and from Ross's Point, especially at peak times, especially when children are going to school. Uh, the need to have an integration officer so that the local community and the Ukrainians yeah. can integrate. I think one man said something very powerful at the meeting. He said, if the situation were reversed he wouldn't like to be sitting in a hotel in Ukraine. And I, I think that, you know, made it very clear to us that we were at a meeting where people were trying to find solutions and ask their local politicians and government to support them. Now, there, were, there was two other asks. Uh, one of them was around extra policing in the peninsula. And I know that that's in train uh, to provide security for everybody. And yeah. the last one was about, and this is a big issue, it's about income foregone, if you like, by tourism businesses, businesses yeah. that depend on the accommodation providers being full or nearly full, certainly during high season, um, and what kind of compensation or supports might be there. And they asked for a dedicated a tourism officer uh, to help with marketing. Ross's Point is still open yeah. uh, idea. And to, uh, but also, you know, we discussed it and one of the things we decided, uh, Mark McSharry proposed it and we looked for um, what they call a topical issue and it just happens. I was yeah. selected last night and I raised that with the Minister. So okay. that's the context. Yeah, but well, you got short shrift, didn't you, from Minister Thomas Byrne? We got well, the usual. I, I wouldn't say I got short shrift, but, but I didn't get what? anything tangible. Okay. I didn't get... Specific support yeah. for the, the tourist sector who yes, might be I mean, affected he said by Catherine Martin is looking at it yeah. and understands it. And, and what I said to Thomas Byrne last night was that we 
even though the first phase is ongoing and that is finding accommodation for people and we hear this morning Roderick O'Gorman is yeah. asking all departments to find accommodation anywhere and everywhere um, we are at the second phase as well and that is where we have to support communities and we have to let people see that mm. They're not left on their own to yep. deal with, uh, you know, very substantial numbers of refugees coming into their communities yep. without support. And and that really is important. It's not enough for government to say, you know, we as a country have obligations. We all know that. Uh, and the majority of people understand and, and are positive towards that. Yep. But equally they recognise we all have to get on with our lives every day. Our children have to be able to get to school on the buses. We have to know that, you know, our health services in so far as is possible can manage what's happening, that there's real attempts at integration and making an extraordinarily difficult system yeah. work for well, people. Well, and that's a big responsibility yeah, well, it, on it, all it, of us yeah, it, it, it comes down to numbers. I think, it, it, I think I, I, I'll be corrected on this. I think 600 Ukrainian refugees have arrived in Ross's Point in, in recent months. It's 900 in Bundoran, Jim. Similar uh, issues there and concerns there. Um, it's it's a difficult whole, the, issue to, to resolve. The issue boils down to a lack of communication. Um, and there seems to be also a lack of coordination at a government level. It's hard to believe. Um, I don't think Roderick O'Gorman, uh, on his own, is one minister is going to be capable of solving all the issues that are involved. This is a multidisciplinary mm. target that needs to be dealt with. Um, I can understand people having um, doubts about access to doctors, uh, the, the, the issue of the schools, I suppose the schools have been an exceptionally good example because they've integrated so many children so efficiently, uh, notwithstanding the fact that they were at uh, their wits' end with the people that they had uh, at the time. Um, I suppose all of the issues that Marion has spoken about are understandable. Um, How do we overcome it, I think, is what we should be asking ourselves. That's the most important thing. Or or can Uh, we overcome it? Do we have the means to overcome it? Well, it. we're running a with, surplus of about with the sheer million, numbers who are arriving billion this year, and I think that we have the wherewithal. We are one of the richest countries in the world, whether we like it or not, and we can afford. I mean, I think Michal Martin said at an earlier stage that the government anticipated we could have up to two hundred thousand Ukrainians. Um, a lot of these people are highly qualified, mm-hmm. and we—if you walk around our town—there are vacancies in almost every shop window uh, and companies are saying they cannot get people. Um, I think we need an analysis of the people that are coming in, what skills they have to offer, can they fill the holes that we've got ourselves. A lot of these people want, they don't want to be locked up in a hotel room. Um, They have enough, I suppose, anguish that they've gone through in their own country. Um, With regards to the accommodation we're running out of accommodation now. Yeah. When all these hotels that are currently being used come back into the tourism sector um, in March, as a lot are saying, uh, where are these people going to go? I think putting people in a sports hall with a, a little uh, partition around them is not 
the best. Mm. But if that's all we can offer, that's all we can offer. And I think that people coming in, you look at uh, immigration where it's happening in other countries and you see fields and miles of tents and all these kind of things. Now, we don't necessarily get to, have to get to that stage and we're a long way away from it, I think. But I think we have to put in place the plans to deal with if this uh, upsurge continues. I have one particular thing. The Ukrainian people are un- a unique situation. Mm. But I listened, uh, you listen regularly to radio and you see it in the paper. Roughly 20% of the people presenting at our airports are without documentation. Mm-hmm. Now, they couldn't get on the plane without it. So they're dumping it on the way. And personally, I would take a tough line with anybody who presents without documentation because it immediately raises questions about them. Why do they want to be in that position? OK, this person says, uh, tell Deputy Harkin that an Irish man or woman would not like to be sitting in a hotel in the Ukraine is very true. But if an Irish man or woman was in Ukraine, they would not be getting full social welfare and a medical card and a free local link bus. Well, they don't know that, of course. Uh, well, they, but they're probably to... they're probably right in what they say. Mm. And I mean, I my view on this is that we owe shelter and we owe safety as human beings, yeah. not as Irish people, but as human beings. In in you know that's that's part of being yeah. part of the human race, but. I, and I've said this weeks ago, uh, publicly, I said it on a radio show, that if people are staying in a hotel, if their accommodation and their food needs are dealt with, well, then they should pay for that from social welfare. And I think a lot of people are concerned about the fairness of this. And I think th- this this is really difficult uh, for everybody, because a lot of people don't want to say what they're thinking. But when you talk to people, and I've tried to talk to people and listen to people in, you know, a reasonable way without shouting about right, wrong, good, bad, but the circumstance in which we find ourselves and the fact that Putin is in this for the long haul. And this isn't just about Ireland and about now, it's about democracy in Europe and there's a global issue here. But equally, as I said, people have to live their lives every day. And what I think has happened is this has come so quickly Mm. and we've scrambled to find accommodation and sort out education as best we can. As you say, the schools have been top class. Um, It's much more difficult when it comes to healthcare because of the constraints that are there already. But We don't have to have everything perfect, Niall. And I do believe that um, if people are accessing um, accommodation, as I said, and food, and their needs are largely catered for, well, then they don't need full social welfare on top of that. And I I think what the government needs to do immediately, because there's no time on this. It's, you know, it's already late in a way putting a plan in place but it's better to do it today and tomorrow than say we'll do it in a month's time um, to deal with matters like this and say this is the situation this is what we're doing and this but supporting communities is important Jim talked about communication yes communication matters but I think that you have to go beyond that it's, it's not enough to say to people 
we are going to. Uh, it, you have to say to people, we are going to, but this is how we will manage it. This is yeah. how we will support your community. Okay. And that's a big responsibility on us as TDs okay. as well. Sh- Sean's been on to say, could you tell Jim, the reason we have vacancies for so many jobs in this country is down to the Dole system, which is far too accommodating and doesn't give any incentive for people to go back to work. And many of our young people, educated people, are going abroad because they're taxed to the hilt in their various careers in Ireland. Um, as, a, as, a, as a former Chamber of... Co- we got a, um, a we got correspondence from someone who'd been visiting the northwest in Sligo in, in specifically uh, last week. They'd been in Sligo for a couple of days and, and they were shocked at how many businesses were closed on the Monday and Tuesday of their visit. Uh, as a former president, is, is that regrettable or is it something that's inevitable, do you think, with how difficult it is for, uh, for business? I think it goes back to the fact of lack of staff. Yeah, um, that's what a lot of people are telling us yeah, in the industry. I, you know, if shops because they want to close, it's if just people don't have enough staff to man their shops for seven days, um, then inevitably they're going to have to cut back at at some stage. Um, it's I, I when I was president of the Chamber of Commerce, it was one of the things I took on at the time because we had this situation, and that's back in the nineties. Yeah, um, so it. We've reverted to that now, but it's it's definitely a product of the fact that they just don't have the staff to do it. Now, there's also another issue that Mondays and Tuesdays tend to be the two worst days for trading. And people are making the choices now because the cost of heating and lighting uh, and paying your staff, if you're not turning over enough money, then you're losing money on those days and people are going to... That's the re- the reality of life. Mm. Could I just revert to one thing sure. in relation to the Ukrainians? I am aware, because friends of mine are involved, that there's in, those that are in guest houses here get the dole money, but they self-cater. They're only pro- provided with accommodation in guest houses and small hotels. Where the facilities are there for self-catering, they feed themselves. They pay for their own food. Themselves. Right, okay. So... Uh, but to get back to the uh, to, yeah. the, to, to the um, fact that we have this Monday and Tuesday thing, I think as long as we have uh, the level of vacancies, um, we're almost. I think it's four point four percent we have of unemployment, unemployment yeah. and that's full employment. Mm. Now, I said earlier when we were talking about the Ukrainians, I personally think that the system we have. Um, leaving aside the Ukrainians, all the people coming into our country, they should be assessed and they should be allowed work. I mean, people are not getting decisions for a year, two years, three years. You hear of people being in direct provision for up to seven years. Okay. And if you talk to them, a lot of them have skills that we don't have. And okay. it's just our own systems. All right, population okay. population has been growing. All right. It's a fact of life. Over years, we've about fifty-five to 70,000 babies being born every year. And this has been a fact for decades. Okay. And we've only about twenty nine to 30,000 people dying. So the population is inevitably growing and unfortunately the okay. services are not... Being Mary, what are your views on that? And I wanted to link it in with the uh, the restoration of the VAT rate to 13.5%. Is that something you are in agreement with or not? No, in fact, uh, on several occasions and no later than last night in the Dáil, I raised this again with the Minister yeah. um, about maintaining the VAT rate at 9%. It, 
it's to keep us competitive, Niall, you know, because if we were to bring it back to 13 and a half, it would be one of the highest in Europe. If we leave it at nine, it's around the average. So that helps to keep us competitive in a difficult tourism market. I mean, you spoke earlier about um, finding staff and that's a big issue. But there's just something else I would throw into that mix as well. And I think COVID brought about changes that, um, you know, some of them will remain. And I think during COVID, people, um, workers uh, were able to find a work-life balance perhaps that hadn't been there before. And people are not that anxious to let it go. Mm. Equally, I understand from talking to business people how difficult it is to get staff. And sometimes when they get staff and they treat them well and upskill them, they still can't hold on to them. And that's always a risk in a market where you have full employment. But I think people's mindset has changed a little bit around work, you know, that for for some people, perhaps pre-COVID, work was the focus of everything they did because it had to be. And now people have taken a step back and realise work is part of their lives, but it's not all of their lives. So that's that's something else as well. And it does impact on business, but people's lives matter as well. Okay, the VAT rate, Jim, as somebody involved in business for many years, what are the effects, do you think, of it being restored to 13.5%? I presume you wouldn't be in favour of it. Uh, it should be kept at 9%. Yeah. One of the reasons I would say that is because of its impact. If it goes to 13.5%, it's going to add to our inflation. And inflation is a big issue because it's eating away at people's incomes and we need that. I think we have to look at as well, if you look at restaurants as a separate sector, um, there's about 3,000 restaurants in, in the country. Uh, they employ about sorry, the, the hospitality uh, group, they contribute about 2.2 billion to the economy as a whole. They employ about 179,000 people, which is 7.6% of the total workforce. And so they make a huge contribution. And I think under the current circumstances, I take the point Marion has made, that COVID devastated them. An awful lot have are struggling to get back on their, on their feet. And I do think that at this stage, we don't need that 4.5%. It's more important that we stay at 9 We protect okay. those jobs. We control inflation. They're going to affect everyone. Okay, this person says, um, when I listen to business people complaining about the VAT increase, I always laugh. Uh, when the 13.5% rate was reduced to 9%, nothing happened. It just meant more increases, leaving me to imagine that the 4.5% saving just goes into profits of the business people. Right, okay. Um, Sorry, Marion, yeah. Just a quick comment which links in the two things we were speaking about and and Jim spoke about the challenges that business face and they they are very real. And, you know, earlier we were speaking about a certain areas and towns which have a very significant number of refugees living there uh, which rely on uh, tourism and seasonal tourism. And that again adds to the argument yeah. that uh, places where this is happening, that, that those kind of businesses who can show that there is a substantial negative impact do need some kind of support from government. Because Niall, 
there's a lot of goodwill out there, but goodwill wears thin after a period of time. Goodwill wears thin if you see that your business is not likely to survive for the year or if that you're working for almost nothing or if people in the locality uh, who might work in your business aren't getting part-time jobs. And we all know that any community business is an important part of the yep. fabric. And And if that's uh, you know, not performing as it should. I won't even use words like collapsing. But if it's not performing as it should, then that has an impact throughout the entire community. Okay. And those are the kind of interventions that government can make. Government can't do everything and it can't do it all the time. But there are certain interventions they can make. We see this from COVID. If anybody had said five years ago that the kind of interventions that governments have made uh, during COVID, if they'd said those could be done, you'd have been laughing out of the studio and everywhere else but circumstances dictate how people react and Uh, how governments react. We we had what I thought was an interesting um, project just before Christmas we we broadcast live from the five uh, municipal district uh, council electoral areas in our area, namely um, Manor Hamilton, North Leitrim, and we're in in uh, Donegal and um, Sligo Strand Hill and Drumcliff and Tubbercurry Valley Moat, and we were basically catching up with all the local councillors to see what the main issues were in their areas and what is their priority for the remainder of their term, which is what just over a year left. And without exception at all in any area, there was no argument on this. The biggest housing facing uh, all areas and the biggest issue that councillors have to deal with is housing. Without exception. Yeah. Yeah. Nobody disagree. You wouldn't be surprised at that, Jim. No, not at all. How do we resolve the issue of housing? If I were the minister, uh, at the moment we have 11,500 people that are homeless. Now, that doesn't mean to say we need 11,500 houses. Mm. If you look back, I was trying to, to look for statistics, up-to-date statistics, and I just couldn't find a breakdown of that 11,500 homeless people. But the, the census of uh, 2016 gave a breakdown, and at that time, there was only 2,900 homeless. But if you take the percentages and, and project them out onto the current uh, 11,500, yeah. Um, there is it, it would show that there's about 4,600 individuals homeless. Yep. There's about 2,196 that are one parent uh, with a child or child or children. Couples with a child, 943, and couples on their own, 258. Now, in total, we, it means we need about 8,000. One of the big problems... I see, listen, if you read the papers and hear radio discussions, is mm. everyone is talking about the cost of inflation and that we, the, the contractors are not building. I would like to suggest that the government sit down and select and decide on a generic one-bedroomed, two-bedroomed, three-bedroomed or four-bedroomed. And they tell every county council in the country, that's the only one you can use. You must build to that spec. You then go to the Institute of Chartered Surveyors and you put a price on that. Mm-hmm. And then you say, every three months we will revi- review the cost of inputs into building. And you inflate the contract by that amount. So the builder doesn't lose. He has an incentive to keep building. Because we're building uniformly 
around the country, we have a, a firm price on what it'll cost us to provide what's necessary. I don't think that's rocket science. Yeah. Every county council should be able to tell you, the housing officer, how many specific units he wants. There's no doubt the bulk of those people, when you look at the statistics, are around the big cities. The number of people homeless in a place like Sligo are relatively small and mm. in the main catered for. But if we go for generic building, we can control the costs, we know exactly what is needed, and I don't think that's rocket science. Okay. Is is it is it the same in, in well, is it the same in your clinics, Marion Harkin? Is housing still a big issue here or the the biggest issue or not? Yeah, it is. And it's just the availability of housing uh, to try and get a place to live. And Jim's idea is a very good one. If you remember mm. Owen Murphy nearly got ran out of the doll the time he was talking about that shared living in Dublin. Yeah. And the reason for that was because uh, and, and I believe quite rightly, the idea was that big developers were going to make more profits out of smaller spaces for people. Yep. But Jim's idea is completely different. Jim's idea is about owner-occupied, people living in these places. They would become homes, not apartments that you, you might live in for a month or a year or whatever. Um, and as you say, basic and at a fixed price. Uh, but it's... Sometimes in, in Ireland, the, the perfect becomes the enemy of the good because it doesn't have everything that people would like. Um, then there, there will be complaints about it. But it's we need solutions, as you say, that aren't rocket science. But mm. one of the things we also need is we need more skilled workers. And, you know, there's various apprenticeship schemes in place. These need to be fast-tracked big time. And we also need to put, in my opinion at least, construction workers on what we call the, the critical skills uh, occupation list, because that would allow us then to um, have workers from outside the EU come yep. into Ireland to fill those vacancies, because we can't fill them here. Okay. And, uh, you know, those are not immediate in the sense that the houses won't appear tomorrow, but they would have an impact within about 12 months. And to be fair to government, um, they've completed, I think, around 28,000 houses this year. They mm. need more, but it is the highest number in a long time. But they they, we, they reckon we need around 33,000. So, I mean, Jim's idea is, is simple and straightforward. And But as we know, Jim, nothing is simple and straightforward. Yeah. But I think as a core of an idea uh, to put as you say, a firm price and look at it every three, six months in a, a regulated way and everybody knows where they stand, everybody knows what's expected and that we at least get accommodation for people uh, that is basic but that will meet their needs for a period of time at least. Okay, 0719118104 our number to call. You can text or WhatsApp to 0833500530. People want to know your views on our health service or lack of them and they want to know your views on, on forestry and the quilture plan and all sorts but I'm going to uh, go back to a story we covered earlier in the week, not as important as those issues but a campaign uh, was launched in our national schools this week to have our children uh, be taught the words of our national anthem, our Ron Nevian. 
Um, I, I won't embarrass you, Jim. I'm, I'm sure you know the word. No, I don't. Well, you can if you want, but <laughs> you'd lose all your listeners. Uh, but do, do, well, do, um, is it fair to ask you? Do you know the words, or have you always known My the word? Grasp of Irish at this stage now, at eighty-six years of age, is not what it used to be. But I do know. I think about eighty percent of it. Yeah, and I take pleasure at. I go dancing four nights a week at singing it every at, at the end of every dance. Well, I was just coming and to that. In so, the basketball so club, um, I'm chairman of the, the Sligo All-Stars. We uh, play the national anthem before every one of our games. Do you? Every one of them? Every game. We don't miss it. And it's uh, not Ireland's call, it's the traditional Ron Levine you're playing. Well, that's not... Uh, uh, Ireland's call is not our national anthem. No, and I agree we with personally, you. Personally, we, we put the flag up for our Super League games and we put the spotlight on it. And on the back of our programme, we put the words of our Ron Levine. Right, OK. I that's that's that, interesting. So at the end, and this is, again, it came up, we had droves of text about this. That's a, a dying tradition. So at the end of your dancing session or event, you, you, you sing the national sing. anthem. That's social dancing everywhere. Yeah, they do it. You know, I suppose it's the cohort of people there. We're all older, and therefore we come from a period when every cinema would play the national anthem. Yeah. You know, every theatre would yeah. play the national anthem, yeah. and schools. I know when I was younger in Drimna and in James's Street Christian Brothers, where I spent the, I didn't have a great di- long education, but back then every morning it came over to the Tannoy. The national anthem. We all sang it. Mm. You know, I think we. Ha- I personally, whilst I wouldn't be um, a mad Republican, I believe that we, our children, should learn how to do that. And I'm trying to play my small part in doing it. And th- most of the women I dance with, they say, "You know the national, the words of the national anthem." Maybe not exactly according right, okay. to the way it was written. Oh, so it's, a, it's, an, it's an impressive quality to have, then, Jim. Is it? No, look, yeah. it's it's. It's just me. You get more dancing partners if you can, I, I, if you I can see that. I think we've got one of the greatest countries in the world. Yeah. And it, it gets up my nose to hear people complaining all the time. We don't know how well off we are. If you grew up, can I just look back? I said, we should learn from history. Mm. If you look back, we solved the housing problem in the 1930s after the big crash. What did they do? They built all the houses the same. You walk down Jinx's Avenue, you walk down around, you go to Dublin and you go to Ballyfermot and you go to Drimnin, you go to Crumlin. The houses are all the same. Because they were working on a single plan, everyone knew the cost. Okay. I, I, I don't say, well, you, you were the maths teacher, Mary, weren't you? Was it just maths you were teaching her? Yeah, a small bit of science sometimes, yeah. but 95% maths. You yeah. never expected to teach the, the children the words of the National Anthem. No, but it's interesting if you go into any American school I think they start the day with the allegiance to the flag and perhaps that's something we should look at. Um, I'm like Jim, I know I probably know 95% of the words and if you were looking at me when I was singing it you wouldn't know whether I got them exactly or not and it's it's like things that are ingrained in your mind from so long back you learn it and maybe not 100% phonetically accurate but 95% 95% of it is so it's it's in there yeah. and you open your mouth and it sort of comes out and it, it does make the hair stand on the back of my neck and not always perhaps but, but a lot of the time it does because really when I hear the national anthem I am programmed basically mm-hmm. to stand straight to put my hands by my side and 
to sing or to listen and normally I would sing and it's just it's that moment in time when you recognise that that's it's it has its own importance so the idea perhaps of whether it's in schools and and I don't want to be putting everything onto the education system but you know sometimes what what you do on a regular basis every day and especially if it's in school really does become ingrained in your psyche. So I do think, yes, we should know it and or at least make an effort to. And I think Jim's idea of, you know, it's on the back of your programme and it's there, it's visible. And even, you know, in recent times, Niall, we see more ads in Irish and it's all about something becoming more normal that you're not surprised to hear or see it. Can I just say one thing? Yeah, sure. One thing that really annoys me is the abuse of our national flag. You see people going around, they write, Murphy's has arrived, or all this kind of thing on the flag. I think we should teach our children in school to respect the flag. The flag should never be allowed to touch the ground. You know, you see people running around at the athletics and they put it around their... I I see you, you put it up outside the buildings... And they put it up and they never take it down. It should go mm. up at dawn and down at, at, at dusk. And you feel strongly about that. So, on a sporting occasion, if you see anything written on the tricolour at all, you, you think that's just you're not on? That, that's an offence. I didn't realise it was The flag has to be respected. Yeah, I didn't realise it was an offence. You know, um, I mean, very okay. few people would probably say, look at Jim Lawler, that knows Jim Lawler, would say, God, I didn't know he was like that. <laughs> but these are the simple things, yeah. I suppose, that makes, from my perspective makes me Irish. I yeah. respect and I love the country. I want to ask you, sorry, were you, yeah, going, to say, were you going to say no, something? No, I there? won't disagree with him. Okay, won't you not? No. Right, okay. Um, I want to ask you about St. Bridget's Day and our bank holiday, uh, to, I suppose, predominantly to Mark St. Bridget, although it was kind of foisted upon us because of the, the, the aftermath of COVID and so forth. What are your thoughts about St. Bridget well, and the bank I mean, holiday. I, I grew up making St. Bridget's crosses and I knew there was a St. Bridget and I knew she had a, a role in in history, as it were. But yep. it's, it's only in more recent times that um, listening to some of the programmes about Bridget that you begin to realise the role she had in the Irish church, what a yep. powerful woman she was and how that there was a real power play between Armagh and Kildare uh, at that time to sort of lead the Irish church and Patrick eventually became our national saint and to some extent St. Patrick's Day uh, was uh, taken over especially in the States and we now have what we have and I'll tell you I, I've been lucky enough once to march with the Sligo contingent down Fifth Avenue in New York and if you want something to make the hair stand on the back of your neck, that's it. I've never experienced anything like it. It was just wonderful. Uh, But to come back to Bridget, um, Bridget was always seen as the not even so much second class. She just didn't really feature yeah. St. Patrick's Day was the day. But now I think we're beginning to recognise, you know, what a strong and powerful woman she was. And there is also the aspect of the, the, the pagan goddess and the start of spring and the feast of Imbolog. And then Christianity came after that and 
you know, she became St. Bridget. So I don't know enough about her, to be yeah. honest, Niall, and I must do a small bit of research. Well, Just the, out of sheer interest. Yeah, there's never been as much talk about her, obviously, because people are getting a free holiday on Monday. Do you Yeah, agree? but I think it's a great idea you? because okay. it breaks the... the that, you know, January is a difficult month for yeah. many reasons, and then you have this this day before you sort of move into spring. And I think it's an excellent idea. And uh, whoever came up with it, and I'm not going to claim it, but I fully support it. Okay, yeah, uh, Jim, just, just uh, St. Bridges Day. It's a, it can also be looked on that uh, St. Patrick's another man and this affords an equality for the women. Yeah, I heard that argument on Virgin Media 1 last night. We, we did not, I heard that argument be made on television last night that we did enough saints uh, oh, recognising men down the years and it yeah, was time I, to... I, I personally look on it that way. I mean, the people of County Loud believe that they have their well over there and that's where she was based and all that. Uh, I think that... Um, every point that Marion has made about the, the history of Catholicism and all that and yeah. the, the, so on. I think, though, I personally would be inclined to say, well, good, this is an, a woman to help balance the thing. At the end of the day, 50% of the, the population of the world are women, maybe slightly uh, above that. And I think that if this is a way of acknowledging women and that it becomes a women's celebratory day, I'd be all in favour of it. I think it's a good idea. I also take the point that it's a great break in that fits in with the school breaks and so on. Yeah. Actually, talking about women's saints, I just heard some commentary on the radio yesterday about St. Dimna or St. Davnet, as she's known in Monaghan. And she was a, a very powerful woman mm-hmm. as well. And I won't go into the detail, but it was most yeah. interesting to yeah, hear. We're, lear- we're learning more about the great women of our t- mm-hmm. uh, of history uh, and that's a good thing. Yeah. And Niall, can I say, and I'm sorry, I'm just running away with you no, here, but to me, and you're talking about women in history, if there was just one uh, image that encapsulated how women were written out of history at a time, and it, her name escapes me now because I didn't intend to speak about this, but when Patrick Pierce, Porig Pierce, uh, surrendered to the British, um, the la- there was a lady beside him. Gosh, I know her name, and it just won't come to me. But and the photograph is there. But she was literally written out of history. She was taken out of the photograph, and the only reason we knew she was there was because they forgot to erase her shoes. So the <laughs> photograph was of Patrick Pierce and this pair of shoes that they forgot about. Um, I'm just. Cr- really annoyed with myself. I can't remember her name because somebody yeah. will ring in immediately no, yeah. and tell yeah. you who it is. But yeah. that was how women in at that period of time and very strong women, of course, in this county were well familiar with Countess Markovics, but there were <coughs> others and yeah. they were written out of history. So it's time that some of them reclaim that space. This person says, I was a school in Summerhill. We took part in an initiative from the Thomas Marr Foundation oh, where, yes. in which we learned the meaning of the flag and etiquette and how not to treat it. Yeah. And I remember, you're right, Jim, I remember taking down a, a, a tricolour of a mask when I was a young fella and it touched the ground and nearly got absolutely annihilated by, yeah. by a man. She was O'Farrell was the lady's name. I can't think of yeah. her first okay. name. Yeah. And a very, we're out of time but a very, very final question. Speaking of, of women in history and, and political, I was going to ask you if you'd be watching the rugby this weekend. Jim, do you, will you watch, you're a rugby fan. What did you, apparently 
Delilah is not going to be sung. Did you hear this? Delilah is not going to be sung before the game. It's traditionally sung before Welsh rugby games, but it's not because of uh, the the contents of the lyrics were. I personally think is that political correctness gone, gone politically mad? mad. You know, mm. about banning this and banning that. If the crowd enjoy it, I, I, one of the things when you're playing Wales, I look forward to are the Welsh people singing beforehand. Yeah. They are noted throughout the world for their singing. And I personally think that banning something like that is absolutely farcical. You, some of the Welsh songs, especially their choral stuff, it's oh, so rousing. Beautiful. And they have plenty of music yes, and, you yeah. know, Land of Our Fathers, for yeah. example. I mean, yeah. it's it's a fabulous song. And I, I don't know why they played Delilah. I mean, I know why, but uh, they have lots of really good um, music themselves. That well, uh, not, I yeah. mean, the, the Eisteddfod that they hold, yeah. their festival of their uh, all their arts, um, is world-renowned and their uh, choral singing, they are one of the best in the world. So banning any of these things yeah. that have been going on traditionally for years and years. Including Delilah. I okay. think it's 